Hey, guess what time of the year it is? Back to school time, right? So we've got that event tonight. So in honor of that, you will find that there is a small quiz at the beginning of your sermon notes. And uh, I want you to go through this with me for just a second. So if you have a pen, I really encourage you to write this down uh, because writing it down solidifies it and clarifies it. Uh, but if you don't, just put it in your mind. So nine questions about this quiz that we're going to ask here. And then we'll turn into this scripture. You'll see the, the relevance of this. Number one, the thing I'd be most worried about losing is, fill in the blank, and don't say God, that's cheating. Um, by the way, I'm, I'm taking these from a pastor who's also president of the, of the Southern Baptist Convention right now, J.D. Greer. Um, so I want to give credit where credit is due. Number two, the thing I'd be most worried about never attaining is, and you can fill in the blank, what is the one thing you wish you could change about your life? Throughout your life, what have you been most willing to sacrifice for? What has made you the most bitter in life? What can't you forgive? This is interesting. What are you willing to lie for? Now, we're good Christians, so we would never lie. So let's, let's uh, phrase that. To shade the truth, to stretch the truth, to maybe not give all the relevant facts um, number eight, where do you turn for comfort? And number nine, whose approval do you seek? As I said, these are from J.D. Greer, um, pastor I admire. And as he went through this, he says, if, if you see the same kind of answer, the same area of answer three times or more, it's probably an area of idolatry or potential idolatry for us. And uh, so with that in mind, we're going to look at a very brief verse and then kind of go into what this means to us today. And that verse is 1 John 5, 21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in your grace, you would show us. Lord, speak to us. Help me not only to explain things rightly and clearly, but would, would you help our spirit to drop its defenses and its walls? Would you help us, God, to understand any area of our life that's even approaching uh, an aspect of idolatry? Would you show us that, God, individually, is there anything that's starting to take the place of you as the first place for our affections and values? Thank you, Father. We love you. We thank you for your word here. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, as you most of you know, we just got through a few weeks ago, 14 weeks going verse by verse through the book of 1 John. And uh, it, it was, to me, a very great, um, study of going through this. I, I learned a lot. Hopefully some of you learned a, a few things as well. But I mentioned that we were going to come back to this verse here at the end because it, it's an odd way to end this book, and I wanted to give it the weight it was due. So I thought, well, we'll put it in this sermon series about um, 
timeless wisdom for, for modern issues, because I want to show you that idolatry is not just an issue of Israel's past, it's an issue of our present as well, of our modern times. This is an odd way to end a book. Very last book, Dear Children, Keep Yourselves from Idols. Now, the reason that's odd is, is twofold. Number one, well, there's a way to end letters, and this is a letter, the letter or the epistle of 1 John. If you read 2 John or 3 John, you're going to see that, that way. John, you know, he, he just gives a standard formula. He, he gives his personal greetings, and then he sends greetings uh, from anyone or to anyone in particular. And, and Paul does the same thing in his letters. And yet with this letter, as John writes about all this, the things troubling this, this dear body of believers that he cares about, he, he comes to the end and he says, I want to give you one final warning. Guard yourselves from idols. And the other reason it's weird is because John has never talked about idols in this book before. In fact, in the Gospel of John and the other letters of John, he does not talk about idols. So what's going on here? Well, <clears throat> most people don't think that he is talking about the physical acts of idolatry, which were uh, in the world, or uh, they're fairly common in the ancient Near East at this time, even in the Roman Empire. So John's writing probably about 70 or 80 AD. But rather, he's talking about the idols of the heart. He's talking about, after going through all this book, about things that pull us away from God, things that, that weaken our love for each other. He comes to the end and he says, oh, by the way, one thing, if you really want to get this, guard yourselves from idols. That's not just a word for them, it's a word from us, for us. We need to guard ourselves from idol. All right, so I'm going to break this down into three parts. First, what is an idol? And... Okay, I think you can answer that in two ways. One, there are actual physical idols. And these are actually both ancient, very ancient statuettes. They're not very large. Recovered from the Middle East. Um, this one over here is about 12 to 1400 BC. So about the time of Moses and Joshua. And I forget the date of this one. I think it's around the same time. Uh, Ishtar or Ashereth, depending on your Bible versions. These were the two primary uh, false gods or false idols of the Old Testament, right? And we remember that the main sin that kept Israel from being God's holy people, the main sin that brought his judgment, the main sin that brought anguish to God's heart was idolatry. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you, you know that, that was the main problem or issue. Now, these were common idols. These were also very common. Apis, the bull, the Egyptian idol, probably when Aaron made the golden calf. You remember that, that story? God wasn't too happy about that, right? And probably Aaron was making something like this because that was an idol about strength and, and power. Molech, one of the ugly gods, and some of these are attached to demonic figures, even demanding child sacrifice, this is a, a representation of what he would look like. Now, with that in mind, though, that, that is one kind of idolatry. But I think we can go a little bit deeper. And for us, there is a different type of idolatry, the idolatry of the heart. So it's not a physical representation of false gods, but it's having something within us that is more important to us than God. Now, 
I don't want you to just think that's my opinion. So look at Colossians 3, 5 here. Paul says, talking about all these things, and then he comes to greed, he says, which is idolatry? In the same way in Ephesians 5, the person who is sexually immoral or impure or greedy, they want more and more uh, of, of sex or pleasure or, or money or possessions. He says that person is an idolater. Now, they're not worshiping Baal or Asherah. They're worshiping some value within them. And I think that's probably in line with what John is thinking of. That's probably in line with, with what he is thinking of. Now, let's expand that a little bit. What can this look like? Tim Keller, a very gifted pastor and theologian, wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. Great book. I encourage you to read it. It'll be convicting, though. Um, and he, his whole book is about idolatry and Christians. And he writes this, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give what only God can give. It can be family and children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances. Bingo, that's me. Your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And he goes on. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Hmm. That is a very good definition. I like Augustine's as well. Probably the greatest thinker of the church has produced since St. Paul. He says, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. Because when we are idolatrous, we use God for that thing. We'll come back to that idea here in a minute. All right. So, this is what we are dealing with here. Now, in your bulletin, from Tim Keller's book, there's this sheet here. 20 Modern Forms of Idolatry. Now, you may, not, may agree or not agree with his formulation of each one. That's not the point. This isn't to give an exhaustive, definitive list. This is to stimulate our own thinking about, okay, which of these really resonates with me? So I encourage you, either in your life group time or, or on your own, to kind of think through this. All right, what could be an idol in my life? Maybe I haven't thought of it that much. Maybe I ought to. So, what is an idol? And I think we've got, hopefully, a pretty good grip on that. Second thing, second question. What is so bad about idolatry anyway? Why was it the central sin that God condemned his people Israel for, and also this challenge to us that John gives, guard yourselves from idols? What is the big deal? Well, there's a couple things here. First of all, idolatry is bad because it's the source of so many other sins. It is the source of so many other sins. Now, how does that look? Well, Martin Luther, in his shorter catechism, 
you know, the great reformer Martin Luther, he, he, he noticed the fact and talked about the fact that the first sin of the Ten Commandments, the first Ten Commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. And then he talks about, don't make a graven idol. And, and he, Martin Luther asks, okay, why is this first? And his answer is this, that all other sins come out of idolatry. Now, you can say that pride as well, because pride is what makes something uh, our devotion to something like that. But, but his point was this. Say, for example, one of the others on the list, right? Do not lie. Now, we know God does not want us to lie. Even children know that. Even, you know, if they don't very little about the Bible or anything, they know that, right, that lying is wrong. We, don't, we know God doesn't want us to lie. And yet, why do we do it? He says, is it not because there's something we value more than God's approval on this point. It might be our reputation. It might be getting out of a difficult situation without too much trouble. It might be business success or getting financial advantage in some way. But there's something there that even though we know God disapproves of that thing, we lie because there's something else that's, at that moment at least, is more important to us than God's approval. I think that's very profound. I also noticed that when Paul, in Romans chapter 1, he also kind of leads credence to this idea that idolatry is, if not the root sin, it's, it's almost the one that brings the others in. For example, here in Romans chapter 1, he wants to describe how all humanity has fallen into sin in Romans chapter 1. And he says this, For although they knew God, he means all humans, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. And then he talks about, as he goes on, how that exchange of replacing the glory of the immortal, invisible God with, with this kind of stuff led to the, all these other sins and led to their perverse thoughts. So, idolatry is the, the ground or the sin of so many other sins. The second thing, and we, and we see it here already, idolatry will draw us away from God. Idolatry will draw us away from God. How? Well, first of all, it's pretty obvious, right? Idolatry is a God substitute. Idolatry is a God substitute. And that is what we see here. That people, although they knew there was a God, there was an inward understanding that there was a God who created all things. Instead of turning to that God, instead of turning to that God as best that they were able to, according to the knowledge they had, the default human response is to turn away from that and to create other gods who can meet our God kind of needs but weren't like this God, weren't holy and ethically demanding, weren't entirely other than us. So we substitute a lesser God because we have these needs for security and significance and, and, and pleasure and treasure and all these other things. And, and many of those are legitimate good needs that we have but we are seeking them apart from God. Secondly, idolatry draws us away from God because it perverts our relationship with God. 
It perverts our relationship with God. And, and this is what Augustine meant when he said that idolatry is worshiping things that ought to be used and using things that ought to be worshipped. Because if I have the goal, say, for example, that I want to be the, uh, the best preacher or pastor in the world, and, and I know you're thinking it's way too late for that, but if that was my goal, and that was the most important thing, then I would use God in order to get to that place. And indeed, very often, our prayers and our desires are motivated by getting God's favor so he will grant this thing to me in some way. And that's exactly how ancient idolatry worked, by the way. If you were in the ancient world and you wanted, uh, you wanted your wife or your field to be more fertile, uh, you would go to a fertility god like Ashereth, and you would offer up sacrifices. And the, through that, you would gain favor with the god who would grant your request. Same thing for war. Same thing for uh, business success. And we do that just a little bit more sophisticated sometimes. So it perverts our relationship with God. And then the last thing. All right. And, and this may go back. Why would we do this? Why would anyone substitute a, a God like this or even a God like wealth, success, achievement, power, relationships? Why would we substitute that for the real, true God? And part of it is, well, we're just big, fat, selfish sinners, but part of it is there's a part of us that wants to live by sight and not by faith. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses says to God, and I'm not sure in what tone of thought Moses is saying this, you are a God who hides himself. Yeah, we don't see God. Not one of us has looked upon God with their eyes because he has no body. Except, and now, for the risen body of Jesus Christ. We don't hear his voice. We don't touch him. And not only that, not only do we have to live in faith that this God is there, though we do not see him or experience him with our senses like we experience most things in this world, not only that, but this God is making promises to us which are mostly fulfilled after our death, right? He promises that he will bring all things together for our good, but he does not promise that we will have all good things right now. He promises us eternal joy, eternal communion with him, but what we have now is a, is a shadow of those things. Listen, if we're going to make any progress in the Christian life at all, we have to recognize that it's going to be by faith, not by sight. Idols, though, they don't require that, really. I can see the little Ashworth statue right there in front of me. More, I can measure my bank account. I can measure my health. I can, I can see the status of my relationship or all these other things that I, I may want. It's immediate, and it's usually more visible. And so it's very difficult, then, to move away from that to having this relationship, this love, valuing this God who is invisible, who says we will see him face to face, but not yet, who gives us promises that are mostly fulfilled after our death. That takes faith. All right. So we said, what's so bad about idolatry? Number one, it's a source of most other sins. Number two, it draws us away from God. 
And then three, idols do not deliver in the long run. Idols don't deliver in the long run. Uh, Jay Rockefeller was kind of like, you know, the Bill Gates of 120, 140 years ago, one of the richest men in America. And someone asked him, uh, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money does a man need? You know his response? Just a little more. And that's what happens when we chase things like approval, achievement, wealth. We find that the goalposts keep moving. Um, good quote here from a book by Andy Crouch. All idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In the end, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. In the memorable phrase of the psychiatrist Jeffrey Santinover, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. Idols will not deliver in the long run. All right. What is an idol? What's so bad about idolatry? Why are we warned against it by this author, First John, as he concludes this, this love letter? And then last question, what do we do? What do we do? I'm going to suggest two things. I'm going to suggest two things. Number one, Ask God to show you your idols. Ask God to show you your idols. I've heard a phrase that I've used before. If you want to know what uh, water is, don't ask a fish. Why? Because when something surrounds us from birth, we tend not to think about it. It's just part of the furniture that's always there. And in the same way, every culture will have its own idols. Every culture will have the things it values the most, the things that says this is the most important thing, this is what we should go after. And so a lot of the things that are going to be idolatrous to us are going to be hidden because they're camouflaged by the background of our culture. Let me give you another quote on this. Uh, some of you might know the name David Foster Wallace. He was one of the last great public intellectuals, uh, a man known for being a very deep, insightful thinker. He wasn't really a believer, at least most of his life, um, but he was always wondering and questioning. In Kenyon College in 2005, he gave the commencement address. It is probably the most famous commencement address uh, that you can find right now. And David Foster Wallace wrote this. And again, this is not really a believing man, but just a man who has really studied human nature. He says, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there actually is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason that for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, and then he lists a bunch, is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. 
It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this is stuff, this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and the skeleton of every great story. But the whole truth is keeping the truth out in front of your daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And here's where I'm going with this. He goes on. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. They are, but again, he's not really a believer. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Wow. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. But we, thankfully, have the Holy Spirit of Christ. And we have the promise of God where he says in James chapter 1, if anyone lacks wisdom, Ask of God, and he will answer that. We have the promise of Jesus. That if we ask anything in line with his will, he will grant that. So don't you think that if we ask God, show us, show me this, what's, what's competing for you in my affections. Show me what I value so highly that I'm even tempted to use you for, or that it brings such great anxiety because I, I'm worried about that thing. Show me what it is. Let me get to the root of that. God will answer that kind of prayer. Now, as you do, let me give, you, let me, let me give us a hint here. As you ask God to show you that you're idle, look for where your strong emotions are. Look for where your strong emotions are, especially anxiety and fear and anger. Because most of the time, this is where you're going to find where your ultimate values are. I, uh, I like to go hiking in Arizona. And one of the uh, one of the things that's true about Arizona, of course, is there's not a whole lot of water there, right? And so, especially, I like to go hiking, and sometimes in the kind of the mountain deserts and uh, or desert mountains, whichever. And one of the things I've learned is uh, you can always tell once you get to a, a vista or a, a point where you can look out. You can always tell where the rivers or the or the streams are. Why? Because they're the only places that have trees. <laughs> You know, you have brush and you have small trees someplace else, but whenever you see a ribbon of large trees, you know, okay, there's a river there. Even though I can't see the water, I know it's there. And, and in the same way, wherever we see the strong ribbon of emotions, it's probably true that there's an idol there or something at least that we're tempted to value too greatly. So ask God to show you your idol. And then last part. Last thing, set your mind on the cross. Set your mind on the cross. Oh, there's that quote, by the way. <laughs> In Colossians 3, we looked at this part already. Greed, which is idolatry, but 
notice how he begins right before this as a contrast. Since you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated on the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, but especially who God is and what he's done for you. Because I'm told that if we pull out, like uproot an idol within us, and we don't plant something better there, then another idol is just going to grow. So the the key is not willpower. The key is not self-condemnation. The key is growing more and more in love with the person of God and what he's done for you. And when you look at the cross, when you come again and again to this table, to this church, to scripture, to the worship music that you might have, or, or to your own thoughts, and you just meditate on what God has done for you, it changes you. It changes your values. And it makes the things that looked so valuable before seem like dust. There's a great verse. We're going to end on this one. Paul had this. He didn't put it this way, that he called this an idol, but if you read his, his, his other letters, you'll see that Chasing religious performance and renown was very central to who he was. I was advanced beyond many of my own age. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he talks about all his achievements. And then he says in Philippians chapter 3, that whatever is to my profit, I now consider loss because I saw Jesus, compared to the sake of knowing Jesus. And when he was on that Jerusalem road, and the scales fell from his eyes as God healed him from his blindness. It was more of the physical scales. It was the, the, the value system of this world that he was able to see through. And he says this. He says, these people who are leading you astray, he's speaking about false teachers there in Galatians. Says, They're just trying to boast about you, that they have more converts. He says, may I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and me to the world. He says, when I look at that cross right there, I realize that every value I was chasing of success and power and name and renown and achievement, I realized that they were the very things, the very emotions that drove the people that killed Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It was the successful people. It was the career politicians of Rome combined with the religious elite of Jerusalem, the Jews and the Gentiles together, the powerful people, the, the winners that drove Jesus Christ to the cross. He says, when I looked at that, I can't side with those kind of values anymore. The world's been crucified to me, and I to the world. I have set my face against the values of the world. Why? Because I, I look at the cross. And that's what happens when you look at the cross. You realize, you realize what you deserve. How can I chase, how can I value, how can I resent not getting more achievement, more things, more accolades when I look at the cross and see what I really deserve? And then when you look at the cross, you look, and you see how deeply God has loved us. And as John says in the same book, we love because he first loved us. 
The God of His mercy has forgiven us all these things because of what He's done at the cross. And when you look at the cross, as I said before, you see that the values of this world are perverse. The price tags have been switched. The things that we thought were valuable and, and worth chasing, Paul says, they're, they're nothing more than, than dung. Philippians chapter 3 again. So, idolatry is a killer. It is not just the pagans who had to worry about this. Paul talks about it. John talks about it in his epistles. This is not just an ancient problem. It is a, an issue for us as well. Okay? Let's be humble enough to receive that. Idolatry is, this, is a killer because it draws us away from God. It leads us into a deeper sin. It, it, it leads to such great anxiety as well. It's, it's a killer for us. And the solution to this is not willpower, not saying, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not to negate the things that are, are valuable because usually if it's something is an idol, there's, there's something of real value there. The solution is to set our mind upon Jesus, especially at the cross, to fall deeper in love with him and, and to reflect more deeply on what he has done for us. That is the way forward.